Uh, the text for the sermon this morning is Romans chapter 5. As you guys are turning there, um, a few introductions are probably in order. Um, my name is Dave Matier, and I bring you greetings from a couple churches. Uh, First Presbyterian up in Beaver is sort of um, our family's home church. I'm an elder at that, uh, at that uh, community of faith. And also from uh, Mosaic Community Church, which is a church plant that the EPC is part of. And I know, I don't know any details, but I know to some extent this, this church here is part of that support of that work. And now is not the time to get into the details, but we can give you some stories later if we want to talk. There's some really good things happening of the Lord, and there's a really a lot of really hard things going on there as well. So it's a challenging dynamic there. But we're excited to see uh, what the Lord will do there. And I uh, kind of do the, the, the student ministry there, which, again, stories later, nothing like this. We have, we have some, uh, some, some tough, really, really rough situations going on there. But it's, um, it's a, uh, a good place to be. So Romans chapter 5, God's Word says this. says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pause for a moment of prayer before we continue. Father in heaven, as, as always, we... Uh, just pause at this time, acknowledging that those words we just read are um, those which will not return void. Your word uh, being powerful and effective for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to every heart uh, in this room. So we pray um, that all that said coming forward would, would illuminate and bring us back to those, those words, that those would resonate deeply within us that the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable to you. And we so, so, so love you, Father. Amen. So we've probably um, all heard at one point or said ourselves uh, common saying, God hates sin but loves the sinner. And I want to sort of frame our consideration of this passage around considering whether, is that a true statement or a false statement. And we're not going to do that thing where, like, you know, raise your hand if you think it's true. and it's Because it's, it's a trick question, right? That's the, that's the, uh, the, 
reality of it, that there is a sense in which it's false, um, in a way maybe it's more commonly used in, in our culture, a way that would diminish the holiness of God and even lead people to a, a false sense of security. But also, we'll see in this passage a way that it's profoundly true in a way that, um, you know, should lead us to worship the profound love of God. So that's kind of the lens through which we're going to be viewing the passage uh, this morning. So we can take the low-hanging fruit first, right? The first part of that, does God hate sin? Yes, right? Unambiguously, absolutely. Um, This message was... um, prepared to be delivered several weeks ago, which I did at Mosaic. We're going through the book of Romans. So we're kind of jumping right in. But, you know, if you know anything about the book of Romans, you know, kind of the theme of the first early chapters there up through chapter 5 is God's opinion upon sin and unrighteousness. And he don't like it, right? We know that God despises sin. One highlight or, you know, low light, I guess, depending how you're looking at it, as a reminder, in, in chapter 1, verse 18, it says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. So God is perfectly holy, and that holiness demands that he despise sin. So yes, God hates sin. But what about that second part then? But then does God love the sinner. And I think very often when that is used in our culture, what people mean is something like that, you know, yes, God disapproves of our sin, but that his love is his dominant characteristic. And therefore, his love in the end will allow him to overlook his sense of justice and holiness. And although that's a very popular view in our culture, Biblically speaking, that is not at all the picture that God gives of his righteousness and holiness. The reason the Old Testament uh, text we read today was chosen, because that's about as explicit as it gets. As a reminder, in Psalm 5, verses 5 through 6, we read this, that the arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies, and the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful. So God's wrath is not simply directed abstractly at sin, but specifically at sinners. And as we know from chapter 3 in Romans, that includes all of us. All of us have fallen short. We've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And similarly then in our passage today, if you look at verse 1, as it starts out, it says, Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And note real carefully what it says there. This does not say that we have the peace of God because we've been justified, as in like a serene and tranquil spirit. That would also be true, right? Peace is one of the fruit of the Spirit. But this passage specifically is saying we have peace with God, implying that prior to what Christ did, there was conflict. In fact, verse 10 calls that explicitly. We reconciled to God while we were his enemies. 
verse 10 says. And verse, says nine, verse 9 says, specifically, we have been saved from God's wrath. So from this angle, God hates sin, but loves the sinner, is a false statement. Right? Scripture impresses upon us all that God's wrath abides on the wicked. And again, there is no unrighteous, not even one. But, like we said at the very beginning, there's nuance involved, because God's wrath isn't the end of the story. We can praise him for that. And that's kind of the, the theme of the focus of this passage. That yes, we were in conflict with God. We were not at peace with him. Yes, we were his enemies. Yes, we were objects of his wrath. But right there, that's when God in his love intervened. And as I was studying this passage, I was really captivated by that little phrase in verse 6. Christ died at just the right time. Because what follows in this passage is, from a human perspective, exactly the wrong time to help somebody. The way we usually think of it, I'll make, make it personally. When am I likely to help somebody else? When am I likely to help you? It's when we're close, right? Then I'll help you, but not when we're estranged. When I believe that we have a mutually beneficial relationship, then I'll help you, right? But not if you have nothing to offer me whatsoever, right? When you respect me, then I'll help you. Not when you spit in my face. But the exact reversal is what we see in this passage. The right time for God to intervene on our behalf in Christ is while we were weak, verse 6. Powerless. Nothing at all we could offer to God. While we were ungodly, verse 8, while we were sinners, right in the middle of our choosing to reject God's commands and, make him, and not allow Him to be the priority in our lives, that's when Christ died for us. Again, you sometimes hear things like, you know, when, when you look at Jesus dying on the cross, that shows you know, how worthy you are. And I get what people mean by that. Right? There's a sense of that. We're all creating the image of God. But you see, according to this passage, it's exactly the opposite, right? The whole point of grace is that I'm not worth it. Christ died for me while I was weak, while I had nothing to offer to God, while I was in full rebellion against Him. So again, for the last time, considering that passage, does God hate sin but love the sinner? Yes, <laughs> profoundly so. Not in the cheap way, maybe our culture resonates and, and rises to the surface where he's going to like overlook sin. It's not a big deal. Right? Like a parent who's got their, caught their child with a hand in the cookie jar. Right? Oh, we're disappointed and I wish they'd choose a better way, but shucks, they're my child. Right? Not in that way. Right? But in the profound way that while we were in full rebellion against God, that's when his love was demonstrated to sinners. It's a classic for a reason. John 3.16. Right? God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So yes, God loves the sinner because He did something about it. Not where He's just going to overlook it, but He did something about it in the midst of our sin and rebellion. And it's that hope, it's that love of God then that's the anchor for our hope. 
in spite of who we are, not because of it. So verses 9 and 10 give two examples of a uh, from a lesser to a greater kind of argument, where if, if X is true, how much more will Y be true? I'm a software engineer by profession, so you have to have a little math thing going in there, right? If, if such and such is true, and the way these are organized is, like, if these things are true about your past and present, that's the proof that your future is that much more secure. So reading those again, this is verses 9 and 10. Since we have now, present tense, since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Future. For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, past, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And this is the great problem that so much of the book of Romans is focused around. What do we do with God's wrath, his just wrath? We've already, we know that we all fall under that. So then do we have to live every day in anxiety knowing that, hey, we're one day closer one way or another, to our end, after which comes the judgment. Do we have to live in anxiety and worry every single day that, oh, I hope when that happens, I just hope against hope that somehow, you know, I won't, I won't suffer from God's wrath. And the answer in this passage is clear. You know we don't have to live in that anxiety because of what Christ has done in the past and we know in our present. Therefore, we know in that day in the future will be spared from God's wrath. The present reality is the hope for what happens in the future. And oh, how I wish that all we had to do this morning was sit in this place and think about those thoughts, meditate on God's word, and that would form the deepest convictions of that hope. It's good to do that, right? It's good to meditate on God's word. But I skipped the part of the passage, if you noticed, probably the most well-known part of this chapter 5, that presents a more sobering assessment that the deepest seated convictions of hope are often formed through our times of suffering. Verses 3 and 4. We also glory in our sufferings, it says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. So we're at the start of a new year. Um, many of us take the opportunity to form resolutions, goals for the next year upcoming. All good things. And I think if we looked at the end of that passage, many of those would be things we'd say, yeah, that's who I want to be in this coming year. Right? I want to be a person of perseverance. I want to be someone with character. I want to be full of hope. But what's the key that unlocks that door? according to this passage, is suffering. And that's where things get a little more complicated, right? Uh, a quick digression um, on the nature of suffering. I think broadly speaking, we can kind of bucket suffering into three categories. One's the kind of suffering we bring upon ourselves by our own foolish actions. Um, the Proverbs is full of this. Laziness leads to poverty. 
if you fool around with someone else's spouse, that's going to bring all kinds of pain and, and disrepute, right? And while we can and should learn from our mistakes, that's really not the form of suffering that's so much in view in this passage. Um, another form of suffering is that which comes upon us through the brokenness of the world, right? Sickness, um, loss. You know, um, Proverbs, yes, says that poverty comes from laziness, but laziness isn't the only reason for poverty, is it? Right? Corrupt systems, people being exploited, economic realities, the untimely closing of a factory. Right? Again, this, this message was prepared in a totally different context. No idea it would be here, but let's acknowledge the only reason I'm here is because there was a very acute recent time of suffering you know, with, 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 with your pastor. And you guys are ministering well to him in that, in that time. And we heard you know, the prayer requests that were coming forth. You know, in, in any group of any size, at any time, you know, I don't know what the stats are, a fifth to a sixth of us, there's something going on. The brokenness of the world, because all of creation groans under the pain of, of sin. And they're suffering in this world. So to be real careful about what I'm going to say next, that kind of suffering is most certainly in context in this passage. Right? And if that's the situation you find yourself in this morning, then the application, I think, is right there. As we, as we fix upon Jesus Christ, go through our suffering with hope, you know, pointed towards him that builds in us perseverance and character and hope. And you can kind of ignore everything else I'm about to say. <laughs> right? If you find yourself in that situation, that is absolutely in scope here. So that's true. And I would also say there's a third type of suffering, which if you follow the argument in the book of Romans, is primarily what Paul is driving at here. And that's the kind of suffering that comes upon us as a direct result of our allegiance to and commitment to Jesus Christ, our testimony to Jesus Christ. It's perhaps most explicitly called out in, in chapter 8 of Romans, and I'll just read that here. It says, Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will, that will be revealed in us. So again, this form of suffering is a direct consequence of our testimony for Jesus Christ in a world that doesn't want to hear that. And this is where the application of our passage in Romans 5 can get really complicated. So you're thinking back to goals. If we went around the room this morning and everybody had the chance to answer the question, you know, what are you aiming for this next year? Who do you want to be? I think all of us in this place right now would know the right answers, right? We want to be more godly. We want to be more consistent followers of Jesus Christ. If you're particularly theologically oriented. You might quote the Westminster Shorter Catechism, right? The, the chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And can all of us in this space, myself included, 
would say that. Those are good answers. But then if I'm honest, as I leave my place of worship and live out the other 160 plus hours of my life, my words and actions often betray different priorities. Right? If someone w- walked around and watched everything I did for an entire week, what would they say at the end of that week? W- what are his priorities? What was he really aiming at? And I think they would very often say things like this, that I want to be comfortable, that I want to be free of drama and difficulty, that I want to be in control, and that I want to be noticed and respected. And do you see how those goals can short-circuit the process outlined in verses 3 and 4 in chapter 5? See, there's not a whole lot I can do to completely insulate myself from the brokenness in this world because of sin. No matter how much kale I eat or how many sit-ups I do, I can get that call from the doctor that changes everything. But there's certainly a lot I can do to avoid the type of suffering that comes from my allegiance to Jesus Christ. And I will choose those things if my actual highest priorities are to be comfortable and respected. And so we need passages like the one before us in Romans 5 to, to, to recalibrate our minds. And I'm no prophet or son of a prophet, but I think as we go in these years ahead, we're going to be called to make these kinds of decisions with increasing frequency and with higher stakes. Um, again, not the hugest person who follows everything, but I think there's enough you can you know, put your finger to the wind. We've, we've moved from a time where you know, Christian morality was dominant Right? And there's good things about that, and there were abuses that happened there that should be grieved. And that's a whole other you know, conversation. To a place where Christian morality was respected, to where it was tolerated, to now where increasingly you and I are seen as obstacles to progress. Right? We're, we're in the way of the cultural agenda. And so we'll be called to make the types of decisions that these believers in, in, in the to whom Paul addressed in the book of Romans, were being called to make all the time. And quite frankly, that most Christians in the world today are called to make. Where we'll be called to consider the reproaches of Christ greater than all the treasures of Egypt, or the treasures of America, as it it were. And so, that then unlocks, though, the progression in this passage. right? Kind of reviewing the whole thing, stepping back. While we were sinners, right, while we were fully in rebellion against God, that's when Christ intervened for us. That we can be spared from the wrath of God. And that raises the question, ah, how do I know that? That's happened to me. How do I know if I'm really part of that? Well, this is one way in these verses in here. right? As we suffer for Christ and we stay steadfast in that, that builds perseverance. You know, I, I can stand firm in the midst of that opposition. As that perseverance is exercised, that builds character. You know, this, it builds our identity. This is who I am. I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm, 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 st- I'm staying with that. As that character is exercised and stays steadfast, that forms hope. 
I really am a believer. <laughs> I really am a child of Christ. I've had every reason to give up on this thing and, stand, and step away. But God has held me fast. He's allowed me to stand firm. And that gives us that hope then. In that future day, we, we belong to Jesus Christ. And so we just pray as, you know, again, we have a, a few weeks into a new year here. And things, things are fresh. And again, some, a lot of times that can be just a, a good moment on the calendar to, to resolve and where we're going for the next year. That we'd all have that um, encouragement in the Holy Spirit to, to stay steadfast, to have our hope fixed upon Him, and be grateful for all He's, he's done for us. Um, we'll go ahead and pray then. Lord, we, we thank You again for um, all that you have done for us that is beyond what words can express in our gratitude. We thank you that though that you've given us words, that you've given us words in your scripture to resonate um, and, and call our hearts to you. We pray for, uh, Lord, many in this place right here who are going through um, times of suffering. We pray that this reality outlined in this passage would be their reality, that you would give them the perseverance, build in them the character, and a sense of hope, that confident assurance of uh, what's going to happen in the future. They are secure in you. Uh, grateful, Lord, for your love for us. Thank you for loving us first. Amen.